Friends, occasionally, people on Facebook post pictures of a beautiful Texas sunset and boast to the whole world on Facebook about the beautiful Texas sunset. I think I picked up on the fact that Diane Jones has recently changed her Facebook cover with a beautiful sunset. And I don't know if it's really a Texas sunset or Florida sunset or, or, or what it is. But um, when you go on vacation, you see a beautiful place. You, you like taking pictures of it and showing it off to your friends. And with such means like social media, it's very easy to let others know of the beauties that, uh, that we enjoy, that we see. Uh, do you recognize that instinct in you to take photos and put it so others can see it? We appreciate that which is beautiful. We have a soft spot for that which is beautiful. And we don't stop there. We want others to know and see what is beautiful. Uh, somehow, Things that are beautiful have an attractional pull on us, don't they? I wonder, what are the things that attract you most as beautiful? Is it art? I'm looking at Taylor Deacon. Is it nature? I know many of you enjoy nature. Is it cars? No young guys particularly are drawn to cars. Is it home decor? Ladies. Is it music? Or fashion? Or simply other people? Uh, we not only have a soft spot for what is beautiful, but we also go a, a step further. Uh, we like the beauty. We like showing off beauty to others. But we go a step further. We like making things that are beautiful. And some people have a great sense of creativity and great skill in creating beautiful things. Where does that sense of beauty and appreciation for beauty and instinct to make things that are beautiful, where does that come from? The Bible tells us it comes from God. In James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The source of all our good instincts, of our appreciations and desires for beauty, are a reflection of our Creator, God, who made us in His image and likeness. God not only created this world beautiful, with amazing sense of beauty, but He made us as beings created in the image of God to appreciate beauty, to desire it, and to create things that are beautiful. Friends, God could have made this world to be a functional world, but that's it. God could have made us to be functional human beings and be flat in terms of thinking through beauty or sense of beauty, and yet God did more than just create us functional human beings. He made us beautiful. He made us with a sense of beauty, with an appreciation for your beauty, and with a desire to make beautiful things. All this is a reflection of the image of God that he has bestowed upon us. 
I wonder how often, though, we think of God as a God of beauty. Let me make a personal confession. Uh, weeks ago, when Pastor Taylor Worley and I were working through a list of, of attributes to consider in the series of attributes, uh, he mentioned in, in this time of brainstorming, he mentioned the attribute of beauty. And I remember thinking, beauty as an attribute of God? I just haven't thought about that particular characteristic. So, Pastor Taylor, thank you for bringing that in, our, in that brainstorming session. The more I thought through this um, attribute, it intrigued my curiosity. I was looking for those places in the scripture that might speak about God and his beauty. And sure enough, looking at scripture, scripture, it did not take long to discover that one of the attributes the Bible attributes to God is the attribute of his beauty. Today is the last Sunday uh, in our sermon series on the attributes of God. We have looked through many attributes. We have actually looked through 20 attributes so far, and today's attribute will be the last one, the 21st attribute. Certainly, there could be more that we could say beyond these 21 attributes, uh, but I pray and hope that the series of, of messages on the attributes of God has encouraged us, has inspired us to consider the beauty of God, the, the multifaceted nature of the excellencies of God. Actually, God's beauty could be defined as, as one pastor put it, as a summary attribute of all the excellencies of God. In this journey of, of the attributes of God, we have considered God's attribute of omnipotence, om, omni, omnipresence, omniscience, providence, wisdom, holiness, love, wrath, patience, jealousy, peace, mercy, faithfulness, grace, goodness, aseity, self-existence, joy, righteousness or justice, and immutability. It would be very sad if we had listened to all these attributes this summer and we have merely been informed or perhaps stretched in our intellectual curiosities but not been led to desire more of who God is because of His excellencies. If we have not been challenged and inspired to actually desire more of the awe of this God and worship Him. The desire to see more of the awe of God is a desire to see His beauty or His glory because the beauty of God comes out of the glory of God. As the famous Dutch theologian Herman Bavink once said, glory is Scripture's special word for God's beauty. Glory is Scripture's special word for God's beauty. Thus, God's beauty is the outward manifestation of the glory of God. Beauty describes the desirability of God's glory, and this should impact our affections and ultimately our worship. So as we consider this last uh, attribute in our series on the beauty of God, we're going to look at two major headings in our, in our study. If you like taking notes, here, here's going to be our, our, our two headings. Number one, how is God's beauty described in the Bible? We're going to look at three subpoints of that. How is God's beauty described in the Bible? And second, we're going to close with 
how meditating on God's beauty benefits us. How meditating on God's beauty benefits us. Let's look at how is God's beauty described in the Bible. There are three major ways the attribute of God's beauty appears in the Bible. First, by referencing beauty explicitly in several passages, uh, referring to God. By referencing beauty explicitly. Second, by showing us that what God makes is beautiful. We're going to see a number of passages that what God makes is beautiful. And third, we're going to see that ultimately the beauty of God is shown through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of the eternal God. Let's look at these uh, three sub-points of how the Bible describes God's beauty. A number of passages speak explicitly about God as beautiful. Uh, let's go through some of these. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 17. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 17. Uh, here the prophet Zechariah says the following. Zechariah 9, 17. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Here the prophet speaks not merely of God's goodness as an attribute of God, but also of God's beauty. And he exclaims in wonder, how great is his beauty. Consider for a moment some of the other attributes and how they affect the greatness of the beauty of God. Consider the, that we have covered that God is eternal. This means that his beauty never fades. Our human beauty is temporal. Proverbs 31, 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Uh, more lasting than human beauty is the Lord. And thus fearing Him out of love and gratitude is more worthy than focusing on the transient beauty of our human bodies. Or consider that God is self-existent. This means that beauty in God is not an attribute that was bestowed upon God, but is self-sufficiently beautiful. I know that sometimes we feel that we can do certain things to beautify ourselves. Some people are born with a particular kind of beauty. Others are born with a particular less kind of beauty. All are beautiful in God's sight. But there are some things that we just may not be able to do to beautify us more. We may think we do. And even if we are successful at doing that, it will only last for a while. Perhaps two, three decades. But then as we all age, we become beautiful in, with wrinkles. It's a different kind of beauty. But the world would say we become less beautiful. Beauty for us humans is transient, but in God, it's eternal. More so, we may try to, to do things that beautify us. There's a sense in which you're either born beautiful or you're not. In God, beauty is not dependent upon some, perhaps a good luck of good genes. No, God is self-existent, and His beauty is part of who He is. God's beauty is great because 
in him all his excellencies are eternal and unfading. And we could say that that God's beauty is a summary of all his excellencies. Consider another passage. Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing, the psalmist says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The psalmist here declares in his longing that he desires to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Why? What, what is the desire behind that desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life? What is the desire behind that desire? The psalmist says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The psalmist desires to be close to the Lord in his presence. And in the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord was most clearly manifested in the temple. The temple was a place where corporate worship took place. The temple was a the place where sacrifices were made to deal with the sin of God's people and thus restore the relationship of God's people back to, the, to God. The temple was a place where people brought sacrifices to express gratitude to God and to express their love for the Lord and praises of God. It was a place where God's people hoped to encounter the living God. But David, for David, all of these experiences are summarized with one phrase, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What David knew about the Lord was not only that he was holy or powerful or faithful or gracious or wrathful against sin or jealous for his people or merciful, but that he was also beautiful. For David, the experience with God in his temple was not merely a religious routine, was not merely an intellectual experience and curiosity. It was an experience of God's beauty. David found God to be beautiful, and he longed to gaze into the beauty of the Lord. I wonder if in our experiences of worship, if our worship of God also strikes this chord of beauty, do we see God as beautiful? Do we long to see and gaze into the beauty of God? Other prophets also speak about the beauty of the Lord. For example, the prophet Isaiah refers explicitly uh, to God's beauty twice. Uh, both times are in the context where God spoke to his own people about the judgment that God was planning to bring against them because of their sin because of their rebellion against the Lord. Yet in the midst of declaring those judgments, the Lord doesn't stop there. The Lord also promises to bring a future time of, of restoration, to restore His people, to, to raise up a remnant from among them. And that restoration, God describes, and, and in that time of restoration, God describes Himself in this following way. Listen to Isaiah 28, verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. In other words, to the people whom the Lord will, will redeem, 
God will be for them a diadem of beauty. What is a diadem? A diadem is a jewel crown or a headband worn as a symbol of sovereignty. It's a way of saying God will be for his people a sovereign Lord, but he will be not merely a sovereign Lord who will rule over them, but he will also be a God of beauty. And God's people will find the Lord and experience the Lord as a diadem of beauty, a sign of sovereignty, but a beautiful sign of sovereignty. The other reference is in Isaiah 33, verse 17. Same context, the people of God are, are told about the destruction that they will experience because of their rebellion. And then they're promised the kind of restoration that God will bring to them. And in verse 17 of Isaiah 33, God says, Your eyes will, see, will behold the king in his beauty. Even though the human kings of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians, God promised to restore his people and to send them another king who would defeat all their enemies. And this promised king is, is in, the, in the context, is not, none other than the Messiah. God's people are promised to look at their king, not merely in his power or sovereignty, not merely in the victories that he will win for them, but they will look at their king in his beauty. Do you see what God wants to show his people that they will experience when they will experience God? They will experience his beauty. Let me ask you, if you were to make a list of things you consider beautiful, God make it into your list. If you were to consider and to make a list of things you consider beautiful, would God make it into your list? God is not only described as beautiful, a second way the Bible describes the attribute of God's beauty is through His works. God wor God's works are described as beautiful. Listen to Ecclesiastes 3, 10 through 11. The author of Ecclesiastes says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God's attribute of beauty is the reason why God makes all things beautiful in his time. He made creation to have such amazing sights of beauty. He made us with the natural instincts to appreciate beauty and to create things that are beautiful. One way that we, you can worship God, that we can worship God, is that whenever we experience a beautiful reality or a beautiful thing or when we create something beautiful, turn that moment into praise to God. He made the beauty. He made you to enjoy the beauty. He made others to have the ability to create beautiful things. Don't waste the experience of beauty that God wants you to enjoy. Turn those moments into moments of worship. Although God has made this creation to be filled with beauty, the Bible also tells us that sin entered into the human 
realm, into our own nature. It has corrupted the entire human race. And even creation itself is groaning under the curse of sin. The Bible closes with a picture of a new creation that God will make. That new creation will have none of the signs of the curse of sin. No death, no tears, no suffering. The picture that God's new creation, uh, of that, the picture of God's new creation described in terms of unspeakable beauty. Listen to the words of Revelation 21. Actually, turn to Revelation 21. We'll be reading a few verses uh, from that chapter. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 10 and 11. The Apostle John says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And a few verses later, the heavenly city is described in this way. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third aggregate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysosprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The picture of God's eternal dwelling with man is described in this most beautiful of pictures, an entire city made of precious stones. The effect of this picture is supposed to have on us is to bring us to a point of awe with the beauty of God and the beauty that God will create for his people to experience in that new heavenly Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, the city of Jerusalem was at a few places described as a city of beauty. We know that Jerusalem has turned, because of its sin, has turned to be a place of, of mockery. Because that's what sin does. Takes the beauty that God created, corrupts it, becomes the object of God's wrath, rightfully. But here God is is presenting a picture of the new Jerusalem, a picture of, of eternal beauty, of dwelling with God in such a, an immaculate, in such a glorious, precious, beautiful, abundance of wealth experience. But how do we get to experience that beauty? At the end of the day, look at verse 27 in Revelation 21. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. To hear that nothing unclean will enter it, friends, that means that you and I, we 
because of the corruption of sin, have no right to enter into that place. Nothing unclean. There's only one hope, and there is one hope. That those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The book of Revelation, the Lamb, is a symbolic name for Jesus. Jesus is a promised king that Isaiah spoke about when Isaiah promised God's remnant people will look upon the king in his beauty. Here in Revelation 21, the light of the city will come not from the sun, but from God in his glory and the Lamb. God shows us his beauty ultimately through Jesus Christ. In order for any of us to be able to have access to God's eternal beauty, God has sent his son Jesus to take upon himself the guilt of our sin and through his death on the cross through his blood that was shed God would cleanse us of our sin of our filthiness actually when the prophet Isaiah described the death of Jesus in one of the most famous passages of the book of Isaiah he references beauty in a human sense listen to Isaiah 53 Verses 2 through 6. Isaiah says the following. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. One of the effects of seeing beauty is that it causes us to desire that which we find beautiful. Humanly speaking, Jesus in his crucifixion had nothing desirable about him. After all, who would want to look and follow a man who was crucified? Thus, Isaiah continues his prophecy about Jesus and says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. The very opposite of beauty. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. But listen to what happened in Jesus in his death on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, on Jesus, humanly speaking, there was no beauty to look at. Because Jesus was carrying upon himself our griefs, our iniquities. There is no beauty in sin. There is no beauty in iniquity. The world will tell you otherwise. In God's sight, sin is what Jesus experienced on the cross. The wrath of God brings sin, or sin brings the wrath of God. The, the wrath of God tells us that sin 
there's no beauty in it, no matter how much the world will tell you that it is. And in the cross of Jesus, there was no human beauty. Anything that this world would appreciate, none of us would esteem it. And yet, friends, this is what Jesus did. If there's no beauty on Jesus Christ, humanly speaking, on the cross, it was because he carried and was wearing on himself the load of the sin of all those who would repent and trust in Christ. Oh, friends, he was scorned and despised. He carried on himself the sorrows and the griefs that we have caused, that we have brought about. Oh, friends, you when you look at Jesus, we might say, humanly speaking, he was devoid. He lacked all the beauty that this world could offer. And yet, even though all have turned away from Christ while he was crucified, there was one glimmer of big hope. One of the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus turned to Jesus and said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was this criminal saying? Jesus, I desire you. And I desire to be with you. And therefore, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One of the two criminals realized what Jesus was trying to convince Pilate of. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king? And Jesus said, you said it. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my father would send the, the angels and would rescue me. But, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate didn't get it. Jesus said, I was born for this, to testify to the truth. Pilate didn't get it. And here is a criminal who was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And in, on the cross, in the last moments, he desired Jesus. And he asked, would you remember me? into your kingdom. Oh, friends, this is the amazing beauty of God. And Jesus said on the cross, truly, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Actually, I left one word out. Jesus said, truly, truly, I said to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Think of the beauty of the new Jerusalem that was presented at the end of Revelation. That is the place that Jesus went up back to. And Jesus promised this, cruci this crucified criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the amazing beauty of God, that through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son who was crucified, even though he did nothing wrong, God opened the door for rebellious sinners, even a criminal like the one who was hanging next to Jesus on the cross. Rebellious sinners couldn't repent of their sins, and their repentance and trust in Christ, anyone can be received into God's promised and eternal kingdom. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he was victorious over the greatest enemy of the people of God, sin and the death that sin deserves. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He appeared to the Apostle John in a vision of dazzling glory and beauty. And he is preparing a place for us so that we can go and be with him. And the Bible closes on this beautiful picture of the glory and beauty of that place that Jesus is preparing. Friends, God is calling us 
to experience Him in His beauty. And if you're not a Christian, you may be thinking that Christianity is just another religion, like all the other religions of the world. Friends, it's not. The God that Christians worship is a God of beauty who calls us into His beauty to gaze upon Him and to experience Him. And this is possible only through His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is portrayed for us in this amazing reality of unspeakable beauty. But be sure of this. There's a caution. That what will make that new reality amazingly beautiful is not merely the beauty of that new creation, but the communion that we will have with a God of beauty. That is what will make that new experience so amazingly beautiful. That's why the last lines from the song, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, closes with this beautiful focus. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. So don't try to pursue beauty for its own end. If you do, you will find yourself turning beauty into an idol. Pursue instead God. And what you will see and experience is God in His eternal beauty. These are some of the ways the Bible speaks about the attributes of God's beauty. But how does this benefit us? How does meditating on God's beauty benefit us? Let's look at the second and final part of our message this morning. A few ways. First of all, God's beauty affects our worship. God's beauty affects our worship or should affect our worship. Psalm 96, the psalm we started with this morning, says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Splendor is another word for beauty. The holiness of God is a beautiful reality. Actually, all of God's attributes are a means by which God shows us His beauty. Such a beauty of God's holiness and all of His attributes should impact the way we worship God. Friends, worship is adoration. Worship involves having a sense of awe. Awe before God. Awe of God Himself. While various scenarios in the Bible show us uh, that the awe of God can sometimes lead to being terrified by God, being stricken down even as dead. This was John's experience when he saw the glory of God in the book of Revelation. Or think of Isaiah who saw the holiness of God in the temple. He fell down dead, as if dead. At the same time, we must approach God in worship with a sense of, of awe of the beauty of God. The glory of God is not just a terrifying experience. It's also a beautiful experience. So worship that does not find beautiful may be induced by a sense of duty or human fear or by merely intellectual acknowledgement or superiority of, of who God is. But if we don't see that God, the God of the Bible, is a God in His great beauty, our affections and adoration and worship of God might be distorted. God's beauty, God's glory are related together in our worship of God. Another way meditating on God's beauty affects us or should affect us, God's beauty has power to affect our ultimate pursuit in life. God's beauty has power to affect our ultimate pursuit in life. Back to Psalm 27, David said, one thing 
I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Think about this for a moment. This is a way of saying, David could, could be saying, if I could ask of the Lord for only one thing, this is what it would be, to be in God's temple so I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's a way of saying Dave, that David's pursuit is he wants to pursue the beauty of the Lord. This is what David asks for. Do you see the past tense? This is what I have asked of the Lord. And do you see the future tense? This is what I will seek after. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord has both a past tense experience and a future tense seeking. David's desire to orient the pursuit of his life around one thing. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Oh, how I wish that every one of us could say this like David did. This is what I've asked. This is what I will continue to seek after. The beauty of the Lord. One of the words associated in the Bible with God's beauty is glory. God's glory is a supremely beautiful and awe-filling reality. So dear brothers and sisters, center your pursuit, your life, upon the glory and beauty of God. Another, another way beauty, God's beauty affects us is that it's an arsenal against our fears. It's an arsenal against our fears. If we kept reading in Psalm 27 a little bit before and after, verse 4, we would recognize quickly that David uttered this one thing request, this ongoing pursuit of his life, not in the midst of a pleasant, calm experience. Oh no, David meditated or expressed this desire in the midst of deep challenges, of deep fears, of deep distress, of running away from his enemies who sought to kill him. Yet in the midst of these deep challenges and distresses, he says, one thing I desire is to meditate on the beauty and see the beauty of the Lord. It's as a way of saying that those who desire and focus on the beauty of the Lord for them, that desire is, a, is an arsenal against the fears that they're facing. Have you ever considered that meditating on the beauty of God is a means of fighting off your fears? Lastly, another benefit we get from, the, from meditating on the beauty of God, that it's an arsenal not only against our fears, it's an arsenal against our temptations to pursue self-beauty. It's an arsenal against our temptations to pursue self-beauty. Sin in the Bible is portrayed several times through the lure of pursuing beauty in the wrong places or in the wrong way. Let me take some examples of how sin is portrayed in the Bible, pursuing the wrong kind of beauty. The book of Proverbs, Solomon instructs us to avoid the adulterous ways of life. He warns against the adulterous woman, and he says this to his son. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. In other words, the way of sexual immorality always presents itself to us as a beautiful woman who is not our spouse. Letting our hearts desire such beauty is forbidden because it leads to death. Part of the lure of sin is our natural instinct for beauty. 
And thus sin often is presented to us in the most beautiful of ways because we have been created with an attractional instinct for what is beautiful. So if sin can present itself beautiful to you and I, it will have a powerful lure to our hearts. When sin corrupted our nature, it corrupted how we search for beauty, where we search for beauty. We now use our hunger and craving for beauty to satisfy our self-centered desires. And in that pursuit, we turn away from the Lord to the beauties that this world in its rebellion tries to offer to us. In the passage from Isaiah 28 that we referenced earlier, God presented himself as a diadem of beauty. You know what was going on earlier in that, in that chapter? God did so because in a few verses earlier, when God exposed the sin of his people as being cons- was, was a, a, of an exposure as being consumed with their glorious beauty. Go and read Isaiah 28 from the beginning. God said that in having sought their own glorious beauty, they did not realize that such pursuits were like a fading flower. So God says in Isaiah 28, 3 and 4, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, swallows it as soon as it is in his hand, God says that the search for beauty, apart from the Lord, becomes like a fading flower. Such beauty pursued at the expense of God will not last. And the picture God gives is that such beauty is like the first fig in the summer. When, when you've been waiting all season for the first fruits to show up, the first fruit that shows up that's ready to be eaten is the one you go to with the a, with a greatest craving. And that's a picture God gives. Only that here, a craving for that first fruit to be taken from the tree and eaten is not a picture of its, of its beauty. It's a picture of how, how quickly the fading beauty is going to be taken away. And instead, God it doesn't stop merely to tell them how quickly their, their beauty is going to be taken away. God goes on to say the very next verse, in verse 5, he says, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. What they have sought after, they've sought in the wrong places. They sought beauty in themselves. They sought beauty apart from the Lord. And the Lord says, you want that? You will have it. But it will be quickly taken away from you. And with that will come the destruction. But instead, the Lord says, I am giving you myself. And in that day, you will experience me as a diadem of beauty. Oh, friends, this means that meditating on the beauty of the Lord is a means of helping us fight off the temptation to seek beauty in the wrong places, in the wrong ways, apart from the Lord. Are you craving for beauty? You desire beauty? Seek it in the Lord. In that day, the Lord will be a crown of beauty. Tom Schreiner, one of the New Testament theologians, wrote a, um, a book of biblical theology of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he said the following... In the book, The Goal of God's Kingdom, 
is to see the king in his beauty and to be enraptured in his glory. See, the, go- the goal of God's kingdom is to see the king in his beauty and to be enraptured in his glory. Let's may our experience be the same. To see the king in his beauty. Let's pray. Father, you have been so merciful. You have been so glorious in revealing to us yourself in all your attributes and helping us see that the sum total of your attributes is is not merely something for our minds to to think about and to be satisfied in our curiosities, but all of them are aimed to help us, inspire us to see your beauty and to worship you in your beauty. Father, we praise you that above all things, above all the creation that you have made beautiful, above all the corruption of sin that has entered this creation, you have provided a way through Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate radiance of your beauty. Father, we thank you that Jesus is more beautiful than anything that we can experience. Father, give us a hunger for your beauty. Give us a hunger for the beauty of Christ. As we will sing this final song of our service, help us, Father, to see Jesus Christ, fairer, more beautiful than anything that this world can offer us. Give us a craving for your beauty, a craving that will last for all eternity, a craving that will be satisfied in eternity. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.